Hello and welcome to the latest of our Psoriatic Arthritis podcast series where we're bringing you new episodes monthly alongside our Rheumatoid and Axpar podcasts. We'll also be supplying you with monthly slide decks to help keep you up to date with the latest research and publications in the field of PSA. My name is Peter Nash, Professor of Medicine, uh, sorry, Rheumatology, Griffith University, beautiful downtown Brisbane. And joining me today are Phil Meese, Professor at the University of Washington School of Medicine, Director of the Rheumatology Research at the Swedish Medical Centre in Seattle, as well as uh, Frank Barron, Professor of Translational Rheumatology, Immunology and Inflammation Medicine at the Goethe University and Director of the Fraunhofer Institute for Translational Medicine and Pharmacology in Frankfurt. And we're also fortunate to be joined by Laura Coates, an Associate Professor at the University of Oxford's Nuffield Department of Orthopedics, Rheumatology and Musculoskeletal Sciences. So welcome everyone. The papers we'll be discussing today in our podcast cover two highly relevant topics in the field, namely the effect of gender on the long-term persistence of targeted therapies, as well as the impact of stichokinumab on synovitis and enthesitis using imaging. So I'll hand over to Philip. Can you tell us all about the first paper, please, Philip? Thanks so much, Peter. So uh, the first paper is entitled Influence of Sex on the Persistence of Different Classes of Targeted Therapies for Psoriatic Arthritis, a cohort study of 14,778 patients from the French Health Insurance Database. That's a lot of patients. This was authored by Laura Pina Vegas and, and her colleagues. So we know that sex differences uh, are present uh, in both the phenotype presentation. For example, in PSA, men have a tendency toward more axial involvement than females. Uh, disease trajectory. So there may be differences in the overall course of disease between males and females. And treatment response in, in psoriatic arthritis have been reported specifically lesser treatment response in, in women uh, than in men. However, we really haven't explored whether different classes of targeted therapies, TNF inhibitors versus IL-17 versus IL-23, for example, differentially affect men and women with PSA. And so these uh, researchers are hoping, uh, given the very large number of patients in their database, to explore this uh, issue. Uh, and they want to find out uh, both about different classes effect, but also uh, the long-term persistence overall of men versus women uh, in, uh, in PSA. So this uh, French nationwide cohort study utilized data from the administrative healthcare database of the French health insurance scheme, which is linked to the hospital discharge database. They included all adults with psoriatic arthritis who were new users of targeted therapies, but not in the year before the index state during 2015 to 2021. They didn't look at earlier time periods, partly because some of the therapies they were looking at, like IL-23 inhibitors, hadn't really been in use much prior to that time, and studied all treatment lines uh, during the study period. Persistence was defined as the time from treatment initiation to discontinuation, and was uh, demonstrated via a 
Kaplan-Meier curves. Multivariate frailty models were utilized to compare persistence by sex. And in addition, CSD mards and prednisone were time-dependent variables. What were their results? So as mentioned, there were a total of 14,778 patients uh, that were looked at. They were all had PSA uh, and they were all new users of targeted therapies. 57% were women with mean age around 50, uh, and 43% were men, mean age 51 years. Overall, the percentage of patients still on treatment at one year was 52% for women and 62% for men. So a 10% gap between the two sexes with uh, lesser persistence in the, in the female population. Then at three years, this persistence dropped down to 27% and 39% respectively. So there we have a 12 point difference between women and men with women uh, being more likely uh, to have dropped off uh, their therapy. Then they interrogated, uh, was there a difference between classes? And they did find uh, differences. For example, TNF inhibitors, as well as IL-17 inhibitors, persistence was lower for women than men. Uh, hazard ratio of 1.4 with uh, TNF inhibitors and 1.2 uh, with IL-17 inhibitors. However, it, with the other agents that were interrogated, the other mechanisms, it was not lower between uh, uh, women and men. So with IL-1223, uh, IL-23 uh, inhibition, or JAK inhibitors, uh, they were very similar. So the conclusion was, first, uh, that there was a, a difference between men and women overall, with more women uh, having less persistence on therapy over time, which is consistent with other um, observational studies. And there appeared to be a difference between mechanisms with more uh, loss of persistence with TNF and IL-17 inhibitors, as opposed to IL-12, 23 inhibitors, IL-23 inhibitors alone, or JAK inhibitors. So then the question but, is, wh why? Uh, so Peter, I guess you're going to ask us that question. Why don't you I am. Can I ask Laura, actually, okay. as the... Uh... The, the gender expert in our group. Laura, why do you think there's a difference in baseline disease activity response to therapy? And then why differential between the different therapies? Yeah, so I think that differential between therapies is really interesting, isn't it? We've seen with lots of studies before that women tend to have higher disease activity at baseline. They probably respond a similar amount, but because they started higher, they end up higher. So they're less likely to achieve kind of targets of disease remission. Um, I know Philip was involved and we've talked about um, systematic literature reviews, looking at this in trial data sets and again, confirming this, but showing slightly different differences between the drugs um, in that uh, meta-analysis. So in the RCTs, it was the targeted synthetic drugs like JAK inhibitors that didn't seem to show such a difference, whereas the other biologics did. And, and here you've got a bit of a difference for some biologics, but not for others. So I think we have had lots of data that confirms the difference. We know that it's there. 
there's a lot more we need to understand from dedicated studies that are ongoing about why and what different things come together to make those differences. But that idea of differential response within drugs is really important because just knowing that women respond worse or are less likely to be persistent on drugs doesn't really help because the patients can't do anything about that. Um, but if you've got evidence that some drugs do better for women compared to men, then you've got an, an argument for personalizing therapy based on sex, which we haven't really had before. So I think that would be particularly interesting if this holds up in other data sets. Frank, do you think this would be different in different countries around the world? Will the German women and German men have a similar thing? <laughs> um, I think the German women and men are not different from the UK ones or from, I don't know whether from the Australian ones, but uh, <laughs> at least the Europeans uh, didn't demonstrate huge differences. And I think we got some some hints of these differences and some ideas based on the two, um, two and a half head-to-head trials. -head I think it, we have the Spirit head-to-head -head, uh, with the IL-17 against TNFs and the Exceed study with IL-17 against TNF. And we have also this Jupiter Citinib was powered uh, enough uh, uh, to demonstrate differences to TNF. And I, if I remember right, there was interesting differences that um, um, that t one mode of action, TNF, was superior on skin response in male patients, but in female, it was the other way around, that UPA was superior in this style. So maybe the differences in response is not always in the same direction to all domains involved in psoriatic disease. And I think this more, makes it more complicated. So I, I, I didn't believe that we will come up with a very simple answer to say, female patients should be treated with IL-17, male should be treated with TNF. I think there's a lot of other influencing factors which should be figured out carefully prior to giving kind of advice or implementing these differences into uh, uh, um, recommendations. But I think it would the next step is easy to, to stratify patients no longer to methotrexate use or no methotrexate use. I think we have enough data on this topic, but maybe to stratify it into, in future as a randomized clinical trials to, to female or male and to see whether we can figure out more precisely what trials differences and how to react on it. I was going to ask Philip about the stratification of baseline in trials moving forward, but do you think the JAK um, difference to the others might be because of their effect on pain as much as their effect on swollen joints and, uh, and other markers, Phil? So I do think that that's a, uh, a provocative idea. Uh, the, uh, we know that some of the differences here may be due to differences in biological pain mechanisms between men and women. Some of that's going to be a higher degree of fibromyalgia-ness in females uh, as compared to males, but there may also be uh, immunobiologic differences. And I think uh, you've hit on something. We, we've, we've been learning that uh, with JAK inhibition, there may be uh, uh, not only reduction of pain because of reduction of inflammation, but there may be a central effect of, of JAK inhibition on, on pain reduction, uh, which is a completely different mechanism than working through reduction of inflammation. We've also seen that to a certain extent with IL-17 inhibitors. We haven't explored that as much with TNF inhibitors. So I, I do think there's gonna be some mechanistic differences there. 
And there is one trial uh, that has been conducted uh, which has stratified based on sex, and that's uh, the um, uh, trial uh, with sonalicumab, which is one of the nanobody IL-17A and F inhibitors. And they were smart and, and said, well, we're getting all this data. So it suggests there might be a difference between sexes. So let's, let's stratify and, and make it uh, so that there's not an imbalance uh, between placebo and treatment arms. Uh, and and I think that uh, what Frank has uh, suggested of doing that type of stratification makes a lot of sense going forward. Oh, excellent. Thank you. You can find that article in R&D Open in the December edition. And we pass hand over to Frank to tell us about the second study, Frank. Yeah, Peter, thank you very much. So, and now, dear audience, now we have a very complex study, at least with respect to the outcome. Um, measurement tools. So we're moving forward to our second paper uh, entitled it's Effects of Secokinumab on Synovitis and Enterthitis in Patients with Psoriatic Arthritis, a 52-week clinical and ultrasound, and this is an important point, results from the randomized double-blind ultimate trial with open-label extension presented by Maria de Agostino, a very well-known uh, expert in ultrasound examination and their colleagues. So um, the study background is very clear. So we know that synovitis is an important feature in PSA that impacts peripheral joints and may also lead to structural damage and impairment of physical function. But in addition, the intestinal component of the disease activity is a very important pathological hallmark of, of psoriatic arthritis and may be differentiated from other uh, peripheral arthritis. A power Doppler ultrasound, so a combination of ultrasound in B mode and a power Doppler, permits a visualization of different forms of synovial and extracynovial inflammation in PSA. And the introduction of power Doppler in addition to B mode has provided greater details of synovial blood cell movements and increased sensitivity to low volume and low velocity blood flow at the microvascular level. So. But how to standardize all these measures? EULAR and the OMERAC initiative have recently standardized the use of power Doppler ultrasound for detecting synovitis and have developed a composite scoring system known as CLUSH score. I don't know how to pronounce it in English, but uh, the Germans say CLUSH score or the global EULAR OMERAC synovitis score. So, um, and now using these new tool and the standardized assessment for let's say imaging objectively measured inflammation in synovial tissue and uh, enterocytes. They use the ultimate study, which is a large phase three study that assessed the responsiveness of the power Doppler ultrasound parameters to PSA treatment using this new scoring system as the primary endpoint. And it demonstrates that secokinumab rapidly and significantly decreased synovitis in PSA. And the aim of this study was to assess the long-term effect of secukinumab at a tissue level on synovitis and extrasynovial enterocytis and across all PSA manifestations using both clinical evaluation and the mentioned power Doppler ultrasound assessment. So the ultimate study was a randomized placebo-controlled phase three study, including bio-naive patients with psoriatic arthritis and having 
active power Doppler ultrasound synovitis and a clinical enteritis, as well as an inadequate response to previous conventional synthetic DEMA therapy. There, these study, these one-year period, um, consists three treatment periods. The one is the randomized placebo control initial 12-week period. So here, patients were randomized to receive secukinumab 150 <coughs> or 300 milligram according to the severity of the skin psoriasis or placebo every week until week four and later on uh, every four weeks up to week 12. So in period two, um, which includes weeks 12 until week 24, all patients received open-label secukinumab, which means placebo patients switched to secukinumab, again, 150 or 300 milligram. And the final period was the period between week 24 and 52, and this was an extended open-label treatment period. So the long-term responsiveness to the global synovitis scoring um, and the clinical enteritis and global power Doppler detected enteritis score at patient level and together with clinical efficacy across all key manifestations of PSA and safety, of course, were assessed. So unfortunately, the numbers were slightly, slightly uh, lower than uh, from the previous study. It was only 166 patients who were enrolled, 144 completed uh, this one-year treatment period. So a significant reduction in this global synovitis or maracular synovitis score was demonstrated in the secukinumab group versus placebo at week 12, followed by a stable reduction of synovitis until week 52 in the secukinumab group, while placebo switches from week 12 reached yeah, roughly a similar level of reduction at week 24 with a stability thereafter. Likewise, a significant reduction in the SPARC clinical enteritis index was shown in the secukinumab group versus placebo at week 12 with sustained improvement to week 52. So the global OMERAC power Doppler ultrasound enteritis score were numerically lower in the secukinumab versus placebo switches in the first two treatment periods with some stability in the third period in both groups. Improvements in clinical response were also observed across all key domains of PSA up to week 52 in both treatment groups with no new or unexpected safety signals. Yet to sum it up, though the ultimate showed consistent improvement in clinically and ultrasound assessed synovitis and enteritis, as well as sustained clinical efficacies through week 52 in patients with PSA treated with secukinumab and SOS who switched from placebo to active treatment with secukinumab. Yeah. So, and my question is, is this now a clinical usable tool to uh, objectively measure repetitively and reproducibly synovitis or inflammation at synovial or anterior tissue? So it's, it's open to discuss. All right, Laura, tell us all about ultrasound. And do you do you think the use of that modality in this study helped treatment other than showing response, which we know Sekikinamon has an excellent response, better than CRP, better than a clinical exam? Was it worth the effort? Can we trust power Doppler about enthesitis where people keep telling me that I've got no symptoms there, but the ultrasound shows something or... I've got terrible symptoms and the ultrasound doesn't show anything. 
What do you think of ultrasound in this kind of situation and particularly from this study? I mean, I think we use ultrasound more and more. It's something that, that I definitely rely on in clinic when we've got patients and we're maybe not sure if they're responding, if they've got pain and we're not clear what it is, definitely around kind of making a new diagnosis. So I think it's increasingly being used in practice, but that's quite different to using it as an outcome in a trial and having such a, a formal standardized scoring system. That's not something that gets done in clinic, just like scoring x-rays doesn't tend to happen in clinic. Uh, you kind of eyeball them and see if there's erosions, just like you have a look at the ultrasound and you say there's lots of synovitis or a little bit or none. Um, so it's um, it's a different way of using it. I think it's really useful to have outcome measures that are a bit more objective. It's, it's something that we struggle with um, in trials that pain and impact of disease and impact of all the comorbidities will influence the patient reported outcomes and even the clinicians assessed outcomes to some degree. I'm not sure for this study, it told us anything that we didn't hugely expect. We thought secukinumab was going to work. We thought it was going to improve imaging evidence of disease. But I wonder if it might have particular use maybe in developing new drugs to get a signal with a smaller number of patients earlier, or if you wanted to compare different therapies. So if you have a more objective measure of definite joint inflammation, that potentially responds quite quickly, although obviously this wasn't that wasn't a focus particularly of the study, then then maybe that gives you an outcome measure you can use to differentiate between therapies at an earlier stage or a smaller study. Um, so in this study, I'm not sure it told me anything new about secukinumab that I didn't expect. It's nice to see, but um, I'm not sure it changes necessarily how I use the drug in practice. <laughs> but it does give good validation around different outcomes and thinking about imaging in clinical trials. So Philip, in the US, ultrasound, I think it's fair to say that it's been disappointing as a tool for treat to target, treat to ultrasound improvement has not worked either for rheumatoid or for PSA, but I'm interested in your take on ultrasound, both from this study and in your clinic, Philip. So in our clinic, as uh, Laura has suggested, we are using ultrasound more and more for diagnostic purposes to really give us a more objective measure of whether inflammation is present either in the uh, synovial space or in the enthesial <laughs> insertion area, understanding that there is some limitation and that it doesn't teach us about osteitis. The uh, we find it quite useful. Uh, and since the clinical enthesitis measures are what I call squishy, uh, uh, they, we can't, don't know if we can really rely on them. It's a, it's a nice objective uh, backup uh, and validation of the presence of inflammation. I also think that uh, even though I agree with uh, completely with Laura that we would have, we, and Frank, that th these are results that we would expect because we've seen really good results in the future uh, trial program, for example, with secukinumab and complete resolution of the clinical enthesitis measures. It is nice to have a validation of the OMERACT effort here. The, uh, the uh, MADA's group uh, with uh, OMERACT has been working hard 
on on developing this enthesitis measure and it, it's nice to see it being used and validated so that it can be used in other spaces an interesting question related to secukinumab is beyond in, inflammatory enthesitis and psoriatic arthritis does this give us any clue about ligaments or tendons in certain not as inflammatory states for example uh uh, we're now doing a trial with secukinumab for rotator cuff tendinopathy. So your standard rotator cuff problem uh, that uh, are seen by orthopedists and rheumatologists and primary care docs. Uh, do we have any sense that IL-17 mechanism might help in more standard tendinopathies? That's where I'm fascinated to see the results of this particular trial that we're involved in. So yeah, I Frank think in Germany, um, I was going to say, yeah, go that, ahead, Peter. You know, there's there's this McGonagall hypothesis that emphasitis comes first before synovitis, and maybe this kind of imaging, if we get very early people or patients in um, dermatology clinics, how do you use sun, uh, ultrasound in Germany, Frank? I think this is exactly in the same way like, like Laura or, or Philip uh, pointed out. So we use it in routine care to confirm what we believe to find during clinical examination. So I always joking, so if I saw an MRI figure or an ultrasound figure, the sensitivity of my fingertip is increasing dramatically as soon as I've seen a power Doppler signal in ultrasound and then I feel the synovitis much more pronounced than without knowing their power Doppler signal. Because we have to know that right now we're doing diagnosis based on primarily clinical presence of enthesitis and dactylitis. And uh, we have not yet defined whether an MRI finding is, is also substituting what we find in clinical examination. But this is how we use it. Your question raising an important point, uh, whether we can yeah, an early pre-subclinical feature of inflammation in psoriasis patient can be classified as a pre-PSA, whatever, only by ultrasound finding. Um, normally, I, I, I'm a believer in the, in the concept that inflammation, if inflammation is there, can be objectively measured or detected by a sensitive imaging technique. But coming back to Philip's uh, discussion about the non-inflammatory uh, non antithiopathies. So we have done a, a couple of years ago, these Achilles study with, with Secukinumab. Uh, and interestingly, um, all the patients with MRI at the Achilles tendon, um, those with or without objectively centrally readed uh, inflammation or not, responded in the same way to the treatment. There was no clear differences. So I think the challenge we have, if we believe on the antithesial concept, we have maybe to accept that a classical inflammation where a tissue inflames, T-cell invades, proliferation is ongoing, inf um, a secondary uh, spreading of vessels is increasing and all these things maybe not uh, it's maybe not present in the same way at the intestinal side compared to what we see in the novel. So at present, I wouldn't believe that we can detect subclinical PSA only by ultrasound. Thank you. 
So we use it as well um, in two main situations. We have a lot of viral arthritis, which is seronegative, and I've seen it, you know, Ross River, Barma Forest, Sinbis, Gitter. I haven't seen Chikungunya. But these people have tremendous symptoms and often very little to find. They're seronegative. And I've seen it do everything from monarthritis to polyarthritis to polyarthralgia. And if you can find subclinical synovitis, you feel a little bit better about starting these people on uh, on therapy because the minute you mm. diagnose a seronegative rheumatoid in our practice, they walk out the door on methotrexate, folic acid and plaquenil before, you know, the door opens. So, you know, that's a big step for a seronegative person in particular. And the other setting is if you want to taper treatment and someone doing very well, if they've got subclinical synovitis, the taper will be unsuccessful. So we used to do MR with gadolinium. Now we can use uh, ultrasound to give us similar kind of inflammation in those people with symptoms but not much defined. And I think Philip already mentioned fibromyalginess. I think many of our PSA patients who have symptoms but nothing defined would have very widespread sign of uh, emphasitis if we looked. We just say it's fibromyalgia and treat them with other things because we don't look very often. So I think that's very interesting. And you'll find that paper from the seminars of arthritis and rheumatism from the December issue. We'd like to thank our colleagues and yourself for joining us for this PSA podcast brought to you by the Immune Mediated Inflammatory Disease Forum. We hope you've enjoyed it, found it useful. Please uh, don't forget to subscribe to our channels on YouTube, Spotify and SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts so that you don't miss future episodes. If you want to read more about this, you'll find the paper, you'll find detailed slide, summary slides of each of the papers on imid.com. Much easier not to misspell than cytokinesignaling.com. So thank you very much, everyone, for your participation. And we look forward to meeting again in a month's time. Thank you.